Welcome to Disarming Persuasion, the podcast for sales and business leadership professionals. My name is Dave Rosenberg, and I am the founder and principal at Locked On Leadership, a consulting firm with a mission to replace Thank God It's Friday with Thank God It's Monday. With me is my co-host, a man who can literally teach sales with one hand tied behind his back, Darren Cecil. Darren, what are we going to discuss today? Well, Dave, I could lie and say I brought a guest, but that would be a lie. So I would say, once again, you brought a guest, and that's all I'm going to say. You know, thank you for doing the whole, not doing the whole, oh my God, it's incredible. How did you do it? Sort of stuff. Because that really was, we're done with that, you know? So yes, we have another guest. Actually, uh, another guest from across the pond, as it were. We, we seem to be um, attracting, you know, the British are coming. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. although I'm not sure if, if our Irish friends would consider that a compliment or not but um we we seem we seem to be attracting guests from the from the uh from the uk from the united kingdoms today we kingdoms yeah i guess it was more than was seven kingdoms actually historically at one point um we have jan cavell jan has quite an amazing background she uh is a um recovering serial entrepreneur I'm not quite sure how recovered she is, but she's in the process of recovering and an author. She wrote the book Scale for Success, and uh, we're going to hear a little bit more about that. But Jan, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you both. Thank you very, very much indeed for inviting me on. Well, it's our pleasure. We're excited to hear your stories and uh, to learn more about you. But first we got to get a little bit of administrative stuff out of the way because we require of all our guests answer one question. The name of our podcast, as everybody knows at this point, is Disarming Persuasion. What does that phrase mean to you? To me, it means um, putting things in the right frame to get a positive response from other people. Wow. Succinctly said. Succinctly said. Good, good job. I like it. Yeah. Um, you know, for us, for us, it, it's meaning persuade in a non, nonviolent manner, right? Really just getting, getting people relaxed enough so they can be open to your message, open to your, what you're trying to, to persuade them to do in a non-manipulative way um so with that in mind i'm wondering um we we talked before and you certainly have had some um interesting background and challenges and and successes uh why don't you start off with tell us just a little bit about your background well my sort of very early days background was in sales um, when I had to go out and work, because mostly I tried to be self-employed or running small businesses just to avoid the horrible state of going out to work. But like many people, when you are not very skilled at anything in particular and you drift in and out of jobs, the thing you can get is a sales job. So I did pick up sales experience and sales knowledge and even the old fish training along the way. And so when I came to do businesses more seriously, 
the bit I was fairly confident of doing was selling, which was just as well, because I find myself in a situation where I had two young kids, very young kids, actually, they were sort of uh, seven and five, maybe a bit younger. And um, but I was a single mom, so I needed to do something which I could do from my home at that point. And selling on the phone just fitted right into that. I could work it around the children and launch a business that way. But it was only ever meant to be a sales operation. And, uh, you know, because I mean, I wasn't really thinking further than paying for the, for the food for the next month, to be honest. Uh, and, you know, over a period of time, the, the sales grew um, because, uh, as I say, that was, that was the better side of what I can do uh, and that in the marketing. And eventually it became to the point where I had supply chain problems and by chance added in manufacturing. Very chance. I'd got a small spray shop at that stage because uh, I was doing furniture. <clears throat> and uh, the, the main supplier who was making furniture for, for me decided to pack it in one Friday afternoon, literally rang my doorbell, said, uh, you know, I'm, I've had enough, I'm, I'm going to retire. And I went, uh, uh, but we need furniture next week. And he went, well, I can't, I can't do it anymore. I'm going to stop. And so, uh, you know, very Britishly, lots of tea went on. And by the end of the afternoon, I bought the, him out on the Never Never, and so I had two very small cottage industries, really. I wouldn't call them businesses at that stage. But uh, just necessarily, I ended up merging them into one unit. And uh, doing that cost an awful lot more money than I expected. Though, so, because I really didn't know what I was doing. Um, and I'd signed a 10 year lease, so I was pretty terrified. And, you know, that meant a lot more selling. It was the only thing I knew to get out of trouble was sell, sell, sell. And so that's what I did to, to get myself out of trouble. And we got up and running. And we went from the five of us uh, up to 43 and um, two, two units in the end. Um, so, so the selling part went pretty well. <laughs> wow. So if I understood, you were a solopreneur selling furniture just on your own and you had a supplier who you ended up buying when he wanted to retire. That's you right. Grew into a 43 person company. Yeah. And how many, when you bought him out, how many people did he have? I had, I had two because we was finishing it because I hadn't got anybody to finish it. And he had two. So, so there were five of us moving into what seemed this enormous unit in, in the millennial December of millennial. And we were rattling around. It was pouring snow, and uh, uh, you know we didn't have any equipment much. And his old machinery, which I really didn't know anything about, because of course I'd never been involved in woodwork. I didn't realise how how decrepit it was, and it wasn't working at all. And there I was, and it had to it had to get on its feet somehow to get me out of trouble, because I was <laughs> financially a lot of trouble by that time. Wow. Well. I have a couple of things. First of all, Dave, I never knew I sounded like Bullwinkle J. Moose when I speak, which is the uh, impression you gave uh, when you were mimicking me. So I appreciate that. I learned a lot about that. Ooh, did, this is, what's that? When did I mimic you? It, oh, I, I thought it was in the beginning. Jen, you didn't hear anything, did you? No. No, you didn't hear him say, oh, Darren, this is the way I start the show. I mean, 
I was like, I sound like Bullwinkle. That's amazing. So that's really cool. <laughs> I've got that going for me. And for those that don't know who uh, Bullwinkle J. Moose is, you could uh, look it up online and then you can definitely say that that is not me. And I appreciate that. But now back to this, Jen. I'm curious. At one point as an entrepreneur, you were saying to yourself, I'm going to talk to him about buying out his company. For entrepreneurs out there, I'm curious, at what point, when did that happen and how did that occur? It literally happened that Friday afternoon. Yeah, and it was a question of absolutely no option. I wasn't going to have any furniture the following week unless I struck some sort of deal with him. Initially, I thought I might be able to persuade him to keep going and that wasn't going to happen. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I suspect he, he was a bit cannier than he let on. I suspect he had it in the back of his mind that he might possibly just strike some sort of deal with me. But, uh, you know, I'll never know that. But, but yeah, it was, it was really panic based. And I mean, I had to make up my mind while he was still there. So, I mean, you know, the whole deal was struck in from, from nowhere and never thinking about it to two hours later. That's, so, that is quite impressive. <laughs> and the people that the two of them that worked there, he told one in the end of weekend because he had told them nothing about what was going to happen, and he'd sworn him to secrecy because he was some distant relative. And the other one still didn't know. So when I walked in Monday morning, I, you know, I had to go. Well, you know, I'm done. You know, you make furniture for me. I'm one of your clients. Apart from the fact I'm not anymore, I'm your boss. Hi. Wow. So. <laughs> Overnight, without any warning, you went from a client, they probably a faceless client, right? They had never met to the person signing their paychecks. Well, that's right. I mean, they have they have met me. They've known me for a few years, but sort of distantly because only through the through their boss. So, so you, yeah. had, you you all right? So you had been up there before. And you had met them, but the, now the relationship, of course, had changed. Totally changed. Totally changed. So. I'm curious then, because you are one of the, and I shouldn't say one of the few, it's not uncommon for salespeople to to take on uh, ownership in a business, right? It's it's certainly the road I took a little um, more planned than that when I started my my uh, second business, a telecommunications company, but it, it's a fairly common pathway. But still, for those who are contemplating it, they're saying, you know, I'm really good in sales, as you were, and I know how to convince uh, prospective buyers that my product is the one to go with. I should be able to run this business. What were some of the pitfalls as well as some of the successes, right? Lessons learned that you had that perhaps you could share. Of course. Well, I think because the whole setup was sales-based, uh, in that, you know, everything we did was to make more sales. I mean, even buying the company was to sell furniture, you know, which is sort of back to front. But it did give us a very customer-focused point of view. And the other addition to that was, of course, I knew absolutely nothing about furniture design and, you know, truly nothing. And I, another little disadvantage is I could not draw but all of a sudden I had to be designing furniture, you know. Mm. So again, you know, I, I think that was a real plus, oddly enough. And it shows what you can do, you know, if you're if you're focused and determined, because 
actually what I did was I'd go out and I'd look at magazines and I'd go to shows and exhibitions and shops and I'd look and, and I'd talk to customers and say, you know, find out what we're selling. And I'd come back to the makers and say, you know, you know, I think they, they like a lot of slabby tops like this, or, you know, they like a curvy leg, you know, with a bobble on the end. And so the makers would, you know, try and interpret my rather horrendous drawings and a vague description and come up with actually something the client wanted. And I wasn't bothered at all, um, you know, that, but it wasn't my great design which had to sell. It genuinely was straight from the client's minds what they wanted which I think puts us in a really strong position uh, from a sales and marketing point of view. And, you know, that really never faltered. Um, you know, we had to go through some transitions. I mean, I ran it for, for over 20 years in the end, or, or just on 20 years. So, so, you know, it went through the 2007, 2008. So let, um, let me, let, let me yeah. see if I understand what I just heard. What I just heard you say is that if you talk to your prospective buyers ask them what they want, and then give it to them, they're actually going to want it. No, yeah. no, <laughs> no, that's not accurate. Maybe in the UK, but certainly not in Los Estados Unidos. Right, tell me more. <laughs> that is pure brilliance. You want to say that again, Dave, for the listeners that maybe have never heard that concept before? You want to say that one more time? <laughs> well, I, I, again, I, I could be mistaken here. It certainly wouldn't be the first time, but my understanding is that if you ask your prospective clients what they want and then provide them what they ask for, they will buy it. It was, it was, it was that coupled with the fact that I hit on it because we were selling B2B and the people we were selling to had the traditional pain points. You know, they wanted an easy life. They were selling on. They wanted reliability and choice and, you know, and made to measure service as well as standard or bundled into one size or, or give it to them. You know, I didn't know any better than to throw up objections because I didn't know what I was doing. So if that's what they wanted, that's what they got, which which did put us in a, in a much stronger position. And later on, when we did, you sort of, you know, I've got to know a little bit more about business, you understand. And we did, uh, you know, com comparisons, asked our clients how we were doing against the competition. You know, right to the end, we would come out ahead on design from people who employed incredibly swanky designers, <laughs> you know, which was, was simply a real living proof of that, that precise thing worked. So I want to jump back because I think you're not giving yourself enough credit. I want to see if I got this straight. You said I was struggling. I needed money. I had a couple of children. I was a single parent. So I did what most people would do. I started dialing for dollars, picking up the phone and selling. Is that what I heard? That's right. And you made it seem like that's what everyone can do. Did you also say that? I do tend to believe that if they're driven enough, you know, I think... I, I mean, I, I'm a great one for believing that your kids are a great motivator, you know, and my back was really to the wall and I, I just was going to make it work, you know, come what may. It did actually get to one Friday afternoon where, I, you know, there just, there was no more runway, you know, and I thought that's it. And I, I was working on an old shelf under the stairs 
and I had an old fax machine because it was it was um, it was a fax phone so and a card index box that was my high tech right. and you know I remember you know going to bed thinking that you know I can't get this thing to work and I came down on the Saturday morning and there was an order in the fax and you know it got that near not happening. Wow and for anyone that's ever experienced that what what was going through your mind at that point panic. you got to Absolute the very panic. end you know i didn't want to leave the children most of all i didn't want to put them with a minder and go out to work and you know i wasn't entirely sure he was going to employ me either so yeah absolutely fine panic okay and then the, the follow-up question on the sales what tips or suggestions can you give to our listeners because you were obviously really good at it, whether it was natural or you became good at it. What are some of the tips and suggestions that you might have for our listeners? I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think I became a lot, a lot better than uh, through, through determination practice and things. But I think don't wade straight in there and sell. Develop relationships. Listen more than you talk. What was that? Listen more than you talk. I went one more time. Uh, Darren, stop. <laughs> I had Sorry, to. I, it, it takes me twice till I catch up with him. Well, <laughs> but yes, listen before you talk. Exactly. You talk. Do it twice. Exactly. I'm with you. Please continue. Um, uh, it's a tips. You're, you're going to put me right off now. Um, tips. Yeah, <laughs> lots of listening. Um, Make friends with every, I mean, if you're phone selling, make friends with everybody you speak to. You know, so many people upset the old-fashioned gatekeeper or whatever, or the PA or whatever, you know, and they can be your best friend. And, you know, just get to know the people you're dealing with. I would, if I thought somebody was worth it, you know, I would phone them, you know, so many times, um, and that, of course, is another thing, you know, there's a proverbial thing of, of don't give up. Most people give up after two or three times, and the average it takes to seven. But, you know, I would phone them so often that at the end of it, you know, people were saying, you know, love to see you, see you next time you're in. And, of course, I've never been in because I couldn't go in. I couldn't afford a babysitter. But, you know, they reckoned they knew me that well, but they'd forgotten they hadn't met me. Wow. So I have to imagine when you transition to business owner, right? And yeah. I mean, you were you were a business owner before, but it was you and one other person, which is a completely different dynamic than you with 40 mouths to feed, right? And I know for me, every time I hired somebody, especially in the smaller, earlier stages of the business, it gets easier as the business grows, right? So when you're 30 people and you hire one, eh, that's not a big deal, but when you're two and you hire your third, it's all, it's like having a child, another mouth to feed. How am I going to put food on the table, right? Driving up business that you probably, how did you get people to see the same vision you saw so that people worked well together? Did you have, was, what was your secret there? I think I was, I was much better at it in the beginning than I was at the end. And, you know, usually, as usual, thing, doing things back to front. Uh, um, I think it was easy at the beginning because partly I was I, I was still so determined because I was in yet more financial trouble having taken on this damn unit. And, you know, but 
I had to make it work, but I also did, was determined, rightly or wrongly, that none of them should know we were in any problem. Um, and because I was, I was absolutely petrified that they would leave and I wouldn't have a clue what I was doing. So somehow I had to make it, you know, fantastic for them to be there. And actually the two, two guys I'd inherited with the woodworking side were, had very mixed feelings about it. It, it was quite strange because, uh, you know, we are going back a bit, but they had uh, no employment contracts. You know, they were expected to, to not take holidays unless there happened to be no work or um, work any overtime that was necessary, unpaid and all this stuff under yeah, their old owner. But they worked in a, an old barn in the countryside and that was what they loved. And of course, I uprooted them and put them on an industrial unit mm. because it, it just made sense for us to be all together, which they got, but they never really adjusted. Um, and, and I didn't know enough to know how much that would matter. Did you, end up, did you end up losing them? I, I didn't, it, it took me, I mean, they did leave in the end, but not for about 15 years. Okay. So it wasn't so quick. <laughs> um and that was that was you know when it had grown and and they were getting involved or, or necessarily getting more management responsibilities because they knew more than anybody else on the on the shop floor and they certainly didn't want to get into all that and it was very difficult um you know and that's that's some of the problems which i'll happily tell, talk to you about and lots of mistakes i made um, but uh, but yeah, it was it was uh, this curious transition from, you know, I thought they I was doing so much for the right thing, and they'd be thrilled to have all the right stuff and the contracts and the you know better pay and better conditions, uh, and actually it wasn't it you know it wasn't it wasn't what made them tick really. So if you had to do that over again, what would you do differently? I would have, if, if I knew what I knew now, I would said, sat them down right from the start and say, look, you've got the expertise, which I haven't, and that's invaluable. You know, you tell me what you want. Um, you know, if you want to stay here, that's fine. But, you know, we're gonna need, need to talk about some sort of training deal that you, you know, deliver on the training side and get others up and running who actually are perfectly happy in an industrial setting because that's what I need to do to pay the bills. You know, but that struck a deal that there was something in it for both of us. But, you know, as I say, I was just blindsided by thinking that, you know, paying them right and, and taking away all this awful sort of terrible conditions. And I mean, the way they were being treated for seniors, but, but, you know, to them it was worth it. Sure. And, you know, to to sort of just encapsulate what I just heard is now you would have handled them the same way you handled your customers then. In other words, you yeah. would have viewed them as a customer and dealt with them in the exact same way yeah. as opposed to assuming you knew what they wanted. Yes, quite right. The lesson learned there for everybody who is in a leadership role and makes that assumption. We all know, you know, the trait saying about what happens when we assume, right? And it, may, it makes life harder for, for everybody. It does. And it, it made life harder for the entire 
um, length of business, really, because they were never, you know, in fairness, they struggled to do their best and they struggled to like it. And while we were still smallish, they, on the whole, didn't mind it and, and they gave it their all. But because they were never happy, they never developed any leadership skills, but everybody looked at them because they had the expertise on the shop floor. And so it was a very uneasy mix, um, you know, and it, it gave the business severe problems and, and shackled the business and stopped it running as well as it should do. Well, first of all, I need to give a compliment to Dave because that was incredible insight on your part, I, I must say. It doesn't happen very often, but that was <laughs> insightful. Well, a, a, you know, a, a blind squirrel will every now and then still find an acorn. Well, that's, well, perhaps, I don't know. I've never seen one out there looking for an acorn, so I don't know if actually that is accurate. But anyway. But we do know a broke clock is right twice a day. We do know that. That is very true. We do know that. Very well point. Any very more trite sayings we could come up we with? We could probably spend the rest of the time come up with ridiculous sayings. Instead, I was giving you the compliment. Well done. Thank and you. then, Jen, my question is, if you look at your leadership over the years, what are the top three challenges that you had to overcome? Or if you don't want to do that, top three lessons learned. You gave um, a great one, right? It's great. It's more a question. I mean, the challenges, I think, were, you know, up till about 15, it was okay, you know, because it was crazy growth because I was playing everything at the sales side. And we got some very nice people in. And because these two guys were actually extremely nice men, they created a lovely atmosphere. And, you know, it was something very special, I guess, because it just happened that way because they were nice and I didn't know any different. And we, we created our own set of values because, I, you know, so that's what we ought to have. I'd read it somewhere. And, uh, you know, I remember fun was one of them, um, you know, which we all felt very strongly about, you know, and we made it a very happy place. And it was only when it grew larger and we had to take on a second unit um, to, to cope with the sales again, that it, we couldn't sustain that culture. And, uh, you know, they, they, the whole thing diluted and with more people coming in, the, we necessarily got people who didn't get the culture <coughs> um, who would take advantage of these nice people who, you know, would go, you know, do your best and come back when from lunch when you can and sort of things, um, you know, and they'd take the neck and they thought they were onto a really good thing. Um, and, and it all got all of a sudden, as opposed to a really nice tight culture, which everybody respected each other, it got to us something very vicious and backbiting. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, Take another sip of that wine, that'll help. I'm going to. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we got, you know, we were in a, a, an industrial town, and, and, you know, one of the challenges for me was, was being a woman. <coughs> Excuse me, not getting a really bad fork in my throat. Um, being a woman on a shop floor. Um, you know, off, often the only woman I'd about 40 odd staff. And, you know, you'd inevitably get some people, you know, talking about challenges who would think that they could intimidate you by violence. 
you know, and I had all sorts of things from furniture to equipment thrown at my head and things over the years. Um, you know, but um, but that didn't actually, I don't know quite why it didn't, it probably should have done, but it didn't actually phase me. And so very quickly got to run, that didn't work. But but it was tricky, um, you know, and people thought you were very odd. Um, you know, there, there was this place with a, an odd reputation for nice culture, but secondly, you could take advantage of, run by a woman. Um, you know, and and that was difficult. And and later on, when I started getting advice, a lot of men would notice respect men, but a lot of men would come in and say, "All the problems you're having is because you're a woman." Not double sense. <laughs> no, um, you know, but you you know, so you soak it up and you try and adapt yourself to a more male type of leadership, and that gets you even further from the original point of being authentic. Right. Good point. And, and so there's some interesting dichotomies there, but what what I heard, and again, I, I want to try and, you know, help our listeners avoid some of the pitfalls that, that you were unable to, right? And, and, you know, for record, all of us who've run businesses have run into our own personal pitfalls, right? So this is, and um, what I'm listening, I'm listening to you and what I'm hearing is that a culture developed mm-hmm. that was a good strong culture but then but the, and, and and then the culture got lost what would you do differently to maintain that original culture i think i mean i firstly i had no idea that we actually took on a second factory the other side of the car park so there was literally any you know there, there was not even parking in between us and the other side and i'd heard of other places doing this and so I thought it was, you know, the next best thing to being a bigger factory. You know, we were all still in it together. And it took somebody coming in one day to say, well, I know one of your problems. You all talk about them over there or us over here. And we were doing it unconsciously, but the culture had immediately divided into two separate places. It was really, really interesting to see, you know, once you realise what was going on. Um, which and you know almost you automatically recruited just slightly different people for each unit and because you know they would fit in uh, and so they had very very different cultures and and they didn't like each other pretty quickly interesting yeah yeah it it reminds me and darren you'll appreciate this as a master of psychology right there's a famed uh study done in 1957 oklahoma the um uh uh oh my god I can't believe I just had the name at the tip of my tongue um robbers cave right which was a study on how groups interact and how they treat each other versus what they call termed out groups and you inadvertently created that very same situation where instead of having an us you had an us and them mm. And the in-group, meaning those people who are on one side, will automatically view the other as a rival, and it's human yeah. nature, and that it, and and it becomes really. So, how would you prevent that? Assuming let's and and I apologize, Darren, for stealing some of your time here, um, okay. but but I think this is really important for listeners who are growing their businesses, and they say, okay, I have to, for similar reasons to yours, have 
these separate locations, you know, or maybe it's a fulfillment center and a factory or whatever. How do you create a unified culture? What would you do to create a unified culture? We tried a lot of things. I mean, we were forever doing the sort of obvious, you know, joint socials and one thing or another, um, you know, and mixed training days and bringing people over to cross culture. And I think, I mean, I, I would probably have one thing we didn't try because the skill set was different was um, for some of the original people to do the recruiting for the new side as such. And I wonder if that would have therefore cloned a more similar recruitment drive, um, looking back on it. Because, because as I say, it was very strange. It, it soon developed, partly because they were different skills. The, the woodworkers considered they were craftsmen and looked down on the finishers who they thought were high and unskilled. And curiously enough, this finishes rather resented it. I guess it's a lot quicker skill to learn than woodwork, but uh, even so, it wasn't it wasn't particularly pleasant. But but you did you got this this tremendous disrespect from woodworkers. Um, and the, one of the problems over here, I don't know what it's like in the states, but there's there's a huge shortage of people who can do any woodwork yes. in this country now. When the trades across I mean, woodwork, finish, finish carpentry is, you know, just one of many, any of the trades in construction, there's a huge lack of manpower. Let me, let me tell us this to Darren, though, because I'm really curious, uh, you, you have a you know, huge, an, an amazing background in this area. Darren, what would you recommend if, if uh, Jan was still in the business today and coming to you with this issue, what would you recommend trying to do? Wow. Uh, first of all, I would do something which I would learned about years ago called future search. And I would bring all the parties together and I'd have them in groups. Um, and I would have equal representation in each group if I could, you know, various entities. So the us and the them, whatever, break them up. Um, what's happened in the past? So there's a historical perspective. What are we doing now? And then what are we hoping to uh, achieve? And we would put the three groups and they would, they would have breakouts. And then what would happen is when we get to the, what are, we, what are we hoping to achieve in 24 months or whatever that time frame is, then we have all the groups come together after the other two report and we talk about how we're gonna get there and who's gonna do what in goal setting. And then it's, you know, it's making it actionable, those sorts of things. That really helps that I've experienced when I've worked with companies. So three groups. No, and as it would, would do with people who were moderately cooperative. I mean, some of the original crowd would have been great for that. Right. You know, later on, we had so many people who were genuinely just out to disrupt, you know, that there that was almost nothing you could do to pull that off. And, you know, you, you know, the, the, it would have been a, a literal fight breakout in the minutes. And then the, the other thing I would do, I don't know if this would make sense and it may not, probably doesn't. But anyway, since Dave asked, the other thing I might do is if there are troublemakers, I'll call them troublemakers, um, I would want them on my side and I would say, hey, we're launching this initiative. You are a leader, really need your assistance. 
what can we do so you can assist this process? Because it's not going to work without you and give them a leadership role. And sometimes people... That can work, absolutely. We we did try that with someone. It did work with some. I think we, we had one from early on who... Uh, I had a business coach briefly who, who calls them internal terrorists. And I'm sure you'll both know exactly what I mean by one of those, um, you know, who just appears wonderful on the surface. Yes. And, you know, does his job. And it's very charming and very popular and spreads nasties throughout. And, you know, the moment you say, you know, this isn't a terribly good idea, having him here, everybody's up in arms because, you know, of course, need him he's a lovely bloke um but we did we did have a lot of trouble with one person on that book and we also had a huge problem with um illegal substances in in the time um you know which which made for the violence worse and mood swings worse and everything else yeah so a, a couple of things just from my perspective darren i loved your solution and in fact it's right in line uh with what sharif and company found in the robber's cave experiment, which is when they gave the uh, two groups common goals, the, the, they, they, they saw themselves then as one. And I won't go into all the details, but they did a bunch of different things. So the experiment was a three-week experiment. Week one, uh, the groups were un- or, or were completely segregated and they formed their own group dynamics, their own moray structures, et cetera. Group two, group, week two, or phase two, they were put in competition and it got really ugly. Phase three, they tempted unification. In the beginning, they did what you what you suggested, and this never works. I've I've been in a group where this doesn't work, where you're just doing socials and you get to know each other, thinking, oh, if we know each other, we'll like each other. <laughs> it's only when we get no. common goals. Yeah. And what Sharif and company did is they they created problems in the camp where they were these these were twelve year old boys were that they had to solve together. Yeah. And, and that's that that created unification. Um, what I would recommend to a client in your situation, uh, Darren said is great. I would also, in addition to the cross training, you know, we'd have company meetings. We would talk about how one side affects the other, right? How great the finished carpenters are a fan, but without the, um, without the finishers, you know, the product doesn't get made and vice versa, cross train them, let them work on each other's side and see how they work together as a whole. But the last piece, and you both just alluded to it is what you call the internal terrorists. I, I, I don't brook them. Okay. I would give them the opportunity as Darren said, to bring them into the side, but if they don't, they're gone. Okay. Because one bad apple, will spoil a whole bunch. Michael Jackson had it right. Yep. I I so agree. I think that's one would be one of my top tips to people, you know, whatever anybody else says, either however raving they think you are, however desperate you are for people, you get rid fast. Yeah, it's interesting. You described and I in, in my 30 year career in one form or another, that description, oh, they're wonderful. They're great. He's a good person, right? But meanwhile, they're really um, passive aggressive Mm. and they are putting little um, uh, mines, minefield or or claymores, right? And they're setting them with a little tripwire and then they go away and they go, oh, wait, watch this, bam. And all of a sudden there's an explosion that they've caused. 
That is Absolutely. the worst. I don't care if they're your top producer. You get rid of them faster than anything. Yeah. So I, I imagine all this sorry. is in your book. Uh, uh, scale I'll say for- that. All right, Darren, I'll let you say it. Go ahead. Sorry. Thank you. Well, here's my question. She's really good in sales. Jen's really good in sales. So let me ask you a question. In 30 seconds, tell us about the book and then why we should buy it. Why would we want to read it? The book is uh, from my own experience, but I discovered this tremendous hard leap between, depending on sector, one to 10 million, you know, but up to that point, you know, we were talking earlier, a small group that's all working together, that's crazy fun, all on the same side. And then you have to go to creating that separate entity and once you've done that, things get easier again because it's more of the same. But it's that big, big leap. Uh, you know, as I say, difficult to pin a figure too exactly. But it, you know, I had such trouble with it and kept on going up and down again, up again, down again, um, you know, making loads of mistakes. Um, but uh, you know, when I got to talking to other entrepreneurs and started doing a lot of training, albeit late in the day. Yeah, I realized that actually I was far from alone, that um, somebody in the book actually talks about it being the death valley of businesses, that leap. And, you know, I think I think you, well, you guys will have seen it. I think it's a it's a it's really an unheralded disaster war zone for businesses. And I wanted to write something that would make people more aware of it, um, make people better prepared for it. Um, and, and, you know, learners, as I believe we do best from other entrepreneurs. So I, I pulled in extra help from other entrepreneurs who have crossed that bridge successfully and uh, put it all together in a, in a uh, I hope, an entertaining re- read that you can pick up and read more of at the same time as giving an awful lot of wisdom, not, not necessarily mine, it must be said. Pick up where? The, the book is, can be got from all good bookshops, as they say, and indeed from your Amazon Online or Barnes & Noble or wherever. And the title, once again? It's called Scale for Success. Scale for Success, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, or all good bookshops. Well, that's one. Jan, thank you so much. Uh, last chance, last words, any w- wisdom or advice anything you want to leave our listeners with i would say uh yeah get rid of your internal terrorists but otherwise uh it's you know it's it's about sound strategy sound strategy and selling and then you get there all right well thank you so much darren it's been great as always pleasure dave thanks Jan, so much really appreciate it my pleasure thank you nice to meet you pleasure That concludes another episode of Disarming Persuasion. My name's Dave Rosenberg. And this is Darren Cecil. Visit our websites at LockedOnLeadership.com or DarrenCecil.com. Follow us on social media. You can find the links in the show notes. Remember, 
If they fail to make a decision, you failed to disarm them.